ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for another edition of the Nixon Now podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. We now continue with part two of the interview with James Sibenius on Dr. Kissinger's lessons on negotiation and deal making at the highest level. Let's discuss a little bit the Middle East war as a case study for zooming out. When the Egyptian and the Syrian armies invaded Israel in 1973, it came as a total surprise for U.S. and uh, Israeli leaders. The U.S. Uh, had to manage an hour-by-hour crisis. Nixon even talked about going to DEFCON 3. How did they fit this hour-by-hour crisis into the bigger strategic picture? And exactly what was the bigger strategic picture? The war was an intelligence surprise, not least to the Israelis and uh, certainly to the administration. And you're also right that hour by hour, they were trying to figure out what to do, um, which involved, you know, a resupply of the Israelis and trying to make sure that this didn't escalate into a superpower confrontation while at the same time really pushing U.S. interests. So it was managed very, very closely, and it was quite dicey. It fit into a larger strategic concept in an interesting way. And you almost have to go back to 1970 when Kissinger wrote a few articles and, as he put it, somewhat incautiously indicated that one of the administration's priorities was to significantly reduce Soviet influence in the Middle East, which was quite considerable. He got a lot of grief for that. It seemed presumptuous and almost irrelevant. How was the U.S. going to you know, reduce uh, Soviet influence in the Middle East, and particularly in Egypt and Syria and other virtual client states at the time? The thought was there, and they thought about it, but they didn't have any really clear, specific way to do this. The pieces were being put in place, though, in an interesting way. A clear priority for Nixon and Kissinger was to reduce the risk of nuclear war, and this meant lessening tensions with the Soviet Union and reducing nuclear arms and so forth. The Soviets were playing kind of hard to get on that, and Kissinger and Nixon also realized, and not fully, but later it became much clearer, that while lots of people thought about a monolithic communist bloc, kind of lumping the Chinese and the, and the Soviets together, that there was actual, actually considerable tension between these two uh, communist giants. And on the Usuri River, on the border. In fact, there were 40 modern mechanized Soviet divisions and about 850,000 Chinese troops. They were skirmishing quite a lot in, uh, you know, this would be in, you know, in 69 and 70 and 71. And there were hundreds of casualties and so forth. Interestingly, Mao was very worried that the Soviets might invade China. Remember, in 1968, The Soviets had invaded Czechoslovakia in 56 and Hungary. And the idea was if a country strayed from the true communist path, there was a right the Soviets asserted to uh, set them straight, which meant invading. And Mao was worried enough about this because the Chinese communist way had diverged from the Soviet quite considerably. And there was this semi-hot war on their border. Mao was worried enough about this with some triggering events that he actually had the Chinese government evacuated from, you know, what was then Peking. Kissinger and Nixon actually realized the Chinese could use the Americans as a counterweight to the Soviets. And that was much of the motivation behind the opening to China, which is its own complex story. Once that initiative was undertaken, 
and the Chinese and the Americans began to develop more of a relationship, that kind of unfroze the Soviets, who were worried about the U.S.-Chinese axis, and the Soviets became more forthcoming. Now, I'm going to relate this to the Middle East in just a moment, but Kissinger and Nixon really wanted to put the U.S. in a position to where it was closer to each of the two communist giants than either was to the other. Kissinger was almost emulating what he'd written about Bismarck having done and began to deepen relationships, or in the language that Kissinger uses, deepen the stakes that each of China and Russia had in improved relations with the United States for sort of different reasons. There are a lot of implications of this for Vietnam and otherwise, but when the Middle East crisis erupted and Kissinger had gone significantly down the path toward improving relations with China and the Soviet Union, and each of them saw increasing value in relations with the United States, that kind of gave Kissinger the confidence to really push, figuring that the Soviets you know, would not go all out and risk breaking what was an increasingly valuable relations with the U.S., so it was ugly, but the calculation was in fact correct, that while the Soviets could make trouble in the Middle East, they couldn't really help the Syrians or the Egyptians attain their objectives, but the Americans could. So by a combination of meeting Soviet military moves with American supplies and so forth, and kind of checkmating the military side of the story, Essentially, Kissinger said to the Egyptians in particular, and later the Syrians, if you deal with us, you can actually attain your objectives, you know, down the road, get the Sinai back and so forth. The Russians can't really do that for you. But in order to deal with us and have us work with you, you're going to have to continue to push out the Soviets. Really, as a result of all of these interconnected pieces and the way the negotiations actually went, first... Kissinger negotiated disengagement agreements between the Egyptians and the Israelis over the Sinai. Then a kind of modus vivendi of the Golan Heights with the, um, with the Syrians. And as the smoke cleared, Soviet influence in the region was radically reduced, really for about 40 years until the Soviets came back into Syria, largely unopposed by the U.S. You know, one might look at this as there's a hot war. Egypt and Syria and some other Arab armies are attacking the Israelis on Yom Kippur. How does one stop this and make peace, or at least stop the bloodshed? That was certainly part of the focus, but if you step back, you see a much broader strategic concept and a set of objectives. And looking at this and how these played into the particulars of those negotiations, I thought were, um, you know, were fascinating. Does this get at the sort of micro-macro aspects that we've been talking about? I haven't talked about his intriguing negotiations with Golden Meir or Anwar Sadat or Hafez Assad, but the, those were sort of the guiding principles that, um, and, the, and the guiding sort of strategic conception that played out in, uh, you know, in, in those talks. Earlier you talked a little bit about um, credibility in negotiations. Is it a matter of keeping one's word in the negotiations, or do the laws of the international arena dictate that you have to back your words with with raw power. Kissinger is probably the foremost exponent of credibility in negotiation, although among really effective negotiators, it's nearly universal. And by credibility, it's both positive and negative. 
we will do what we say we're going to do, and that can be offer rewards, create an alliance, uh, whatever it might be, as well as carry out threats. And we will refrain from what we say we're not going to do. So Kissinger almost draws an analogy between credibility and negotiation and an individual's character. Looking at it analytically, I'd say you're trying to trying to get your counterparts in negotiation to assign a high probability that your words are not bluffs. And so it really matters. Virtually anybody in negotiation will underscore that. However, where it starts to get very tricky is when the costs of carrying out what one said you were going to do begin to be much larger and the prospects of success much more dim. And the classic case of that is in, is in Vietnam. The term credibility almost became a dirty word because, you know, four U.S. presidents had told the South Vietnamese that the U.S. would back them. And Kissinger saw that was absolutely vital to stick with that commitment because it would affect U.S. relationships every place else. And the Chinese, if they didn't perceive the U.S. back up its words with action, why would they rely on the U.S. as a counterweight against the Soviets and so forth? Kissinger was really articulate on this point. And yet others would say, look, at a certain point, if you're not going to succeed in an area, if circumstances have changed, then credibility becomes kind of a fetish. And there's almost a cottage industry among academics in international relations, of which I'm not one, but I have many colleagues who are, who look at credibility, you know, does it really matter? Doesn't it really matter? There are lots of studies on it. Can you overdo it? And so forth. But I think in negotiation and among effective negotiators, that sense that you will do what you say you're going to do and refrain from what you say you're not going to do is really a bedrock of effectiveness. As you move into the broader foreign policy arena where the credibility of countries' commitments overall, it can become more arguable. But it's, it's also one of the reasons that when you think of Kissinger's kind of zooming out and broader approach, he was always asking if what I do here, whether it's in Southern Africa or whether it's in you know, China or Paris or whatever, other people will be looking at that and making a judgment about my credibility elsewhere. So it was, you know, you don't just look at a negotiation in isolation, but it's influence on, on your reputation for, uh, for credibility elsewhere, I would say, is a bedrock of his uh, approach to negotiation. In Chapter 5, you speak a bit about the three, kind of three normative approaches to negotiation. You talk about the theological view, the psychiatric view, and the realist view. Can you talk a little about each of them and tell us where Dr. Kissinger falls? I had never heard about theologians and psychiatrists with respect to negotiation. Those were his words. But what he essentially meant was a theologian, in Kissinger's phrase, looking at negotiation, was someone who pretty much thought of negotiation as the kind of cleanup work after you've established an overwhelmingly powerful situation and somebody effectively concedes and you negotiate their their surrender. Until you have an overwhelmingly powerful position, there's really no point in negotiation. And there were a number of people in the Cold War that felt that around the Soviets, that there was no point in negotiating with these people. They weren't reliable. They were only deceptive. And the only thing they understood was power. So there wasn't any point in, in negotiating except once one had developed overwhelming superiority. And then there was kind of a mystical, somehow that translates into the kind of agreements that you want. That, by the way, has its counterparts in pretty much every era. So 
you'll find Dick Cheney saying, we don't negotiate with evil, we defeat it. And just, you know, a, a very strong view that negotiation has a pretty limited role relative to raw power. Of course, the relationship between power and negotiation is very, very important, but this is kind of an extra strong version of that view. Psychiatrists, in Kissinger's words, a little derisively, I think meant the kind of naive people who said, you should always negotiate. More than that, most disagreements or conflicts are primarily the result of misunderstandings or feelings of vulnerability. And if we can clear those up, then we'll all eye to eye and our interests will, will coincide. And Kissinger really had no patience for that. And he sort of looked at these as, as the two kind of ineffective poles of negotiation. The term realist is one that, that we um, debated a little bit about whether to use because the term realist is very close to realpolitik. And that's a kind of dog-eat-dog -dog view of, um, of international relations that has countries pretty much always clambering for relative power against each other in kind of a zero-sum context. We use the term realistic in a different sense, and one that we think captures how Kissinger looked at negotiation. He would say, they have interests, we have interests. Are there agreements that we can strike that simultaneously are better for both sides than a failure to agree? And that meant you look at, with, with a hard-headed sense, not a, um, not a kind of a sentimental sense or looking for atmospherics, but tangible agreements that are better in terms of the interests of each side as they see them than the consequences of no deal. So you're always weighing the sort of deal versus no deal balance. And only where you can craft a deal so that it's better than no deal for all sides are you going to get an agreement. But you should look for those things. So negotiations is a means to an end. It's not something that you always do or something that you never do. That's the, the distinction between the sort of theologians and psychiatrists versus how we characterize Kissinger, who didn't see himself in either of those camps. You touched on the uh, striking the or shaping the deal slash no deal balance. When exactly do you know when to, or, or in Kissinger's case, when did he ex exactly know when to pull out of a deal or, or believe that uh, not having a deal was more strategically beneficial than actually um, getting one? Well, I think if Kissinger decided that a counterpart was unreliable, unable to make a deal, unwilling to actually carry it out once made, that the chances of him saying yes would be quite low. But I think the deal-no-deal -deal balance is a crucial indicator for a realistic negotiator of, of where a deal is possible. One of the things that I think was interesting, other than looking at the remarkable successes of, uh, of Kissinger, were some of the negotiations where things didn't work out. And in particular, he tried very hard to persuade the Pakistanis not to develop a military nuclear program and failed and in, in that negotiation. And what became pretty clear is that no deal for Ali Bhutto's government really meant that they would in fact develop a nuclear weapon, that this would be a counterpart to India, that it was a matter of both his political future and prestige. And that's what no deal meant. That's what saying no to Kissinger meant. And pretty much all of the inducements or meaningful threats that Kissinger or the American government might bring to bear, as well as the outside players, France and others, 
might uh, put together, no deal was going to be superior. And they pretty much had to give up on that. There was another really interesting example that I knew next to nothing about. You referred earlier to the 73 war between Egypt, Israel, and Syria, and so forth. There were two disengagement accords that not only greatly reduced Soviet influence in the Middle East, have really stood to this day. The Egyptian-Israeli disengagement agreement over the Sinai and the Syrian-Israeli deal over the Golan. With those in place, Kissinger really hoped to do a third disengagement agreement with the Jordanians. And his idea was that the Palestinians, with the PLO and under Yasser Arafat, were most unlikely to ever make a deal with the Israelis. But if Palestinians were effectively under Jordanian control, a deal might be much more likely. And of course, this theme was had happened, you know, was, was reiterated much later and many other times. But at the time, Kissinger tried to persuade the Jordanian king, if he, Kissinger, could induce the Israelis to give up some of the territory from the 67 war, to take political control of the Palestinians, that the chances of an Israeli-Jordanian deal that would encompass the Palestinians would be much greater. Well, he really worked on that third disengagement agreement, and lots and lots of, of effort and shuttle diplomacy went into it. But, you know, after the 73 war, which was a total surprise and nearly a mortal disaster for the Israelis, Golda Meir, the then prime minister, and the Labor Party were were heavily damaged by that. Yitzhak Rabin was prime minister, and he had a one-vote majority in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset. And Kissinger was trying to persuade him to do a third disengagement accord with the Jordanians. And the first two, by the way, were not that popular in Israel at the time. And so he was hesitant. And then in the, when the Arab League, in a meeting in Rabat, in the middle of these negotiations, declared the PLO to be the sole legitimate rep representative of the Palestinian people, Kissinger looked at it, and you say, okay, a deal might be very advantageous. We can see why you'd want to have it. But no deal to the other parties, it looks like that's going to be where it goes. And so he pretty much had to give up on that. So it's, a, it's kind of a gauge of where a deal makes sense or doesn't make sense. In both the Rhodesian case and the Vietnam case, one of the central barriers to the agreement that Kissinger sought was that no deal looked much better to his, his counterparts. So Ian Smith, the Rhodesian head, he wanted to keep power, naturally. And for the whites in Rhodesia, this was very important. So no deal was very attractive relative to saying, yes, we'll accept the principle of black majority rule. And if you go to the Paris peace talks, there's a famous kind of moment when the chief North Vietnamese negotiator, Lee Duc Tho, is talking to Kissinger on the steps of the villa in Paris and saying, I really don't know why I even need to talk to you because I've spent time with George McGovern. I know what's going on in the U.S. All we have to do is wait because you're going to take out all your troops anyway. And so why would we say yes? Because we just wait a little bit and we'll prevail. And so if you translate this into the deal, no deal language, no deal was very attractive to Ian Smith and to the North Vietnamese and Lee Duc Tho. So what Kissinger had to do was a combination of either make a deal sweeter or no deal worse. And that really guided his, uh, his negotiating strategy in both cases. It's elaborate, but in effect, in the Rhodesian case, by a complex coalition of moderate and radical black African states, plus the South Africans, Ian Smith's 
no-deal option, his continued preference to say no, was much reduced in attractiveness. In fact, it was almost untenable, at which point a deal or a yes made sense. And really, in the Vietnam talks, Lee Duc Tho, it looked like no was superior because domestically Nixon and Kissinger would be forced to, to draw everything down and, and, and get out and so forth. And so really what he ended up, what Kissinger and Nixon ended up doing on multiple fronts were a series of actions that continued no much less attractive. Some of it was on the battlefield in the spring offensive, but probably the most intriguing aspects were continually working on the Chinese and the Soviets the principal backers of the North Vietnamese to cause them to reduce their diplomatic and in some cases material support for the North Vietnamese on whom they greatly depended. And in that sense, after those things happened, they got the deal in, in, in 73 with the no deal option substantially, substantially worsened. Now, of course, within two years, the North Vietnamese had essentially rebuilt the, um, you know, their, their military might and the deal fell apart after Watergate and, and so forth. When you look at this deal-no-deal deal aspect, Kissinger was constantly monitoring. Does a deal make sense? Is no-deal look better? And where do we have to make a deal sweeter or no-deal worse? And how do we do that by often a complex series of other negotiations that my co-authors and I came to call a negotiation campaign? You know, you think of doing a deal that doing a negotiation campaign is actually more accurately what Kissinger did. And by the way, a complex merger or doing an investment, you know, building a, building a, a mine or a pipeline in another country, often there are many parties. A lot of them will say no. How do you get a deal simultaneously by improving, you know, no deal and, uh, and worsening the, sorry, by improving the value of a yes and worsening the cost of a no? That's a simplistic description but the way Kissinger actually did this is, is uh, remarkably creative. You talk about the Vietnam episode. You, you write a uh, quote in the book, it vividly illustrates the inse inseparability of tactics at the, t at the table and the game-changing uh, negotiated moves away from the table. In the case of Vietnam, you pose the question the context of the negotiation strategies that um, you outlined throughout the book. Why not simply withdraw from Vietnam in 1969 rather than go through a process of you know, four extra years of negotiation when the um, when the North Vietnamese weren't going to you know keep their word and, and make make game changing moves. Could you illustrate this a little bit? Getting into the Vietnam negotiations felt dicey to me, partly because there's so much written and so much film, whether it's Ken Burns or you know any number of uh, Vietnam movies and otherwise, and it's so mired in controversy that. I wondered if we would gain anything by digging into this or if everything that we found would be overshadowed by the controversy and it would be hard to learn much of anything. But as we got into it, what I saw and tried to capture was how, you know, initially what I think I had thought of as a fairly strong U.S. position was actually quite weak. Kissinger and Nixon were committed to getting out of Vietnam, and from 550,000 troops, within a couple of years, they were down to 170,000, and by 73, down to 25,000. So they were, they were on the way out, and the North Vietnamese knew this. Kissinger, I think, made four deep assumptions in continuing to prosecute the war. One is that Vietnam was strategically critical, a central front in the Cold War. Two 
what the U.S. did in Vietnam would deeply affect its credibility elsewhere, especially with the Chinese and the Soviets. Three, Vietnamization could succeed, and there was some evidence of that, although it was shakier. And four, is that if they made a deal, it would be enforceable. At the time, in 69, when Nixon came into office, all of those kind of bedrock assumptions of going forward on Vietnam were contested by a lot of people. But many people held to those, including Kissinger and Nixon, of course. And the negotiations, based on those premises, I was really impressed with how they tried to make these things, you know, how they, how they carried them out very creatively with the Russians and the Chinese and Western Europeans and the Germans in particular. There's a web of, of actions that were devoted toward making no deal worse for the North Vietnamese. And they ended up actually getting this deal. But as it happened, when Richard Nixon resigned in 74, and the deal had been struck, of course, in, in, in 73, within a couple of years, the U.S. was unable to supply, you know, the, the continued aid to the South Vietnamese and the air power that had been decisive in, in some of the later year spring offensive battles in, 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 North, in Vietnam. And as a result, the negotiations failed. Well, they failed and the North took over and atrocities and boat people and re-education and it was a disaster for a long, a long time. And so the reasonable question was, if it was going to end up that way, why not simply pull out or negotiate the release of American prisoners and a few other things in early 69 when Nixon took office and save all of the killing and destruction and wounded over the four years between 69 and 73 when the deal was done? And still, North Vietnamese, the North Vietnam would take over, but you wouldn't have had all that intervening bloodshed and so forth. And it's a very powerful argument. To understand what Nixon and Kissinger, I think, were doing is if you take those four assumptions that I've identified and said, that's what we believe, then going ahead, I think, in their view, made sense. And the negotiations were impressive. But if those four things were not true, going ahead, I think, didn't make a lot of sense, no matter how sophisticated the negotiation. When I look at it, the, the tricky thing, because after the fact, ex post, and to many people at the time, the U.S. should have gotten out of Vietnam. It, was, it really didn't make sense to, to stay there. That was really a function of one's judgment on the strategic significance of Vietnam, its implications for credibility, the prospects for Vietnamization, and whether a deal could ultimately be enforced. But the broader lesson I draw from it is you want to be sure of your assumptions when you go into a deal. You know, you can have a pretty fancy negotiating strategy to take over, a, you know, a merger, but or say to, to um, consummate a, a complicated merger with a lot of different parties and so forth. But if you're merging with the wrong party or you're making an investment in the wrong company, great negotiation isn't going to save what's a flawed policy or a flawed economic uh, set of judgments. It's a painful thing because you look at it, and I think at the time I was a college student and in the, in the latter years of, of Vietnam. And in, you know, 74 and 75, when I was nearing graduation from college, it was really hard to see why the U.S. was in Vietnam at all as we were pulling out and South Vietnam was falling and so forth. You know, stepping back 
many years later and looking at this thing, you could see the rationale, or at least I believe that I fairly constructed it. I think there's a lot to learn from the negotiation, but the basic assumptions really matter. And in that case, I think they proved to be flawed, although the creativity in the negotiations themselves has, I think, a lot of lessons to, uh, to teach us. That concludes part two of the interview with James Sibenius on Dr. Kissinger's negotiation strategy. I'm Jonathan Mavertis. You've been listening to another edition of the Nixon Up podcast. Please stay tuned for our upcoming episodes at nixonfoundation.org.